Luke, and I'll, and I'll even tell you where, Luke chapter number, wow, seven. Thank you, Julie. You're on it. Luke chapter number seven. And uh, <clears throat> is there anybody here, and I won't make you raise your hand, but if you want to, you can, uh, who you really, really like following the rules. I mean, you're a rule person, just, right? And who here, like, hates the rules? Yeah, I, I, we already know. Yes. Some of you hippies, I tell you. No, uh, that's kind of how we are sometimes. The, the, uh, some people are, like, really, really prone to authority and submitting to authority and some people are not. I remember like one of the ways you kind of could tell some, something about people is like, and I hate to even bring this up, but during COVID, there's all these rules. And some people, they just defied the rules. And some people are really about following the rules. And that's just kind of how life is, right? And uh, authority is a thing in life that uh, sometimes we, we don't necessarily love it. Sometimes but it can be a blessing. It can be a very, very important thing. And we've been talking about faith and owning a faith that matters. This is our second in the series, talking about owning a faith that matters. And um, this idea of authority is such an important uh, concept in terms of our faith. And uh, as a parent, I've now even more kind of aware of the importance of authority and, and responding to authority in my kids' lives. I realized something here recently. It comes up all the time as a parent. Um, my kids have the same last name as me. Have you noticed that? Your kids have the same last name as you? Which means when they go to school or when they're away from me, how they respond to authority reflects on me. How many of you guys have ever felt that before? And I remember my dad did this, and I feel totally like my dad so much when I turn around and look in the back seat or I'm sitting next to my kids and I say, remember, you have my name and you have Jesus' name. Act like it. Yeah. I don't know what's going on here. Um, there's definitely this awareness that how, I, how my kids, and here's the other part of it, how my kids respond to my authority as dad ends up reflecting on how they, or ends up impacting or creating patterns on how they will respond to the authority of police officers, teachers, their boss one day, you know, and ultimately, it's amazing. This speaking of bearing the same name, God calls Himself Father, and then He calls us who have kids Father. It's the same name, right? And so there is a connection between how my kids think about their dad and how they think about their dad, right? There is a connection there. And so how you think about authority is important. And there is a sense in which thinking about God's authority, thinking about Jesus' authority, there is an element of faith there. 
it's one thing to think that there's a God and that you should have faith in God when things are going bad and you need bailed out. People show up to church. Um, sometimes the people that show up to the church for the first time, we haven't seen them before. They're here because things have gotten bad in their life and they have some kind of tragedy, some kind of crisis, some kind of addiction that has come to a, come to a head. And I'm here and I'm here because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in a jam, right? I even had a girl one time come to my office and say, I got saved yesterday. I said, oh, that's awesome. Tell me about it. And then she started to tell me the story of a long, all this stuff that happened to her and how, and how that she believed God was going to get her out of it. And I said, okay, well, can I show you some verses? And I walked through the, the gospel, walked through Romans and showed her what she, I said, when you asked, when you said that God saved you, were you talking about that God saved you, like what I just showed you from your sin? Or were you saying you believe God saved you out of the circumstance you were in? She goes, oh, the circumstances. So she wasn't even talking about from salvation. She was talking about saved out of, out of the difficulty, right? And so same vocabulary, different dictionary. Um, so it's one thing to think that God's there to provide for me and to get me out of a jam and that kind of a thing. It's another thing to believe that there's a God and to believe that that God has a will and that I ought to submit to that will because he is in charge and I'm not, right? And so part of having a faith that matters and owning a faith that matters is recognizing God's authority and recognizing Jesus' authority. This is what is demonstrated in a, in a story that we find in Luke chapter number seven. And um, that, and by the way, as a believer, if, my, if I want to grow in my faith in the Lord, if I want to grow in my relationship with God, um, I need to submit to God's authority. How do I know that I am submitting to God's authority? How do I know that I am following Christ's authority in my life? Well, we can demonstrate a faith that is yielded to Christ's authority when we display three attitudes towards him that we're going to see here in Luke chapter number seven. And it's given by a very unlikely person. If you read with me in Luke chapter number seven, Verse 1, we'll start there. It says, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, you'll see, um, if you look back at chapter, Luke chapter number 6, down to verse number 17, you'll see it says, He came down with them and stood in the plain in the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all of Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea of coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came near to him and to be healed of their disease. And they were vexed with unclean spirits and they were all healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for they were, for there were, went virtue out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eye, uh, eyes on his disciples and said, blessed be ye poor. And then like my Bible, this is where I started. There's a bunch of red from there all the way to the end of chapter six. My Bible's all red. How about yours? So what's Jesus doing? He's teaching. So he's been doing all this teaching. He gets, so, and 
there he is up. Where, where did it say he was? He's, he's, um, people are coming from Tyre and Sidon and Judea. And Ju- it's, they're coming from all over to see him. So this is a part in Jesus' life where his fame is growing. Obviously, if, if he's feeding people and he's healing people, who, who agrees? That'd be something to go see, especially if they didn't have TV. <laughs> they didn't have social media. He's like, it's all word of mouth. People are coming from all over to see Jesus because he's doing some ama- he is doing uh, miracles that no one's ever seen before. He's, he's doing uh, healings that could totally help people um, that need it. And then, of course, he's teaching like nobody's taught before. Who, what, what um, race of people is he mostly connecting with? Jewish people, for sure. He's in Israel. He's in Judea, Jerusalem. Uh, certainly, he's reaching mostly them. What were the Jews... What were the Jews' attitude towards people that were not Jewish? Were they really warm and fuzzy about them? No, not really. Now let me ask you this one. What about Romans? Right? Who were the Romans to them at this moment? They They were their conquerors. These were people who were occupying what they saw as their land. And by the way, it was their land. The Romans were occupying their land. So when you get to verse number one, it says, he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people. He entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto them the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. Let me pause there. So who is imploring Jesus here is a Roman centurion. Now, when you think about the word centurion, what word does that sound like? What's another word that, century? How long is a century? A hundred. So a centurion was someone, it was a, a Roman soldier who was in charge of a hundred, at least a hundred people. Now, it may very well be. I don't know. I'm not a historian. Uh, I don't have this off the top of my head. The word centurion became a title. So for sure he was in charge of at least 100, but it may be that at some point he may have been in charge of more than 100, right? Um, but at least 100 people. Now, what did I just say? He was in charge of 100 people. Do soldiers understand authority? They have to. So just pay attention to that. So you have here this guy, and he has... Now, this is a different kind of centurion, it sounds like. When you think about military people in charge of a lot of guys, are they like... Do you imagine them all sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya? Hey, it's seven o'clock, time to cuddle. Right? You don't think about that, right? Are you with me? These are not soft people, right? Um, you don't think of them, but look at what it says about this guy. He had a servant who was, in verse two, dear unto him. This is a guy who cared 
about the people that were under him. Okay? Now, that's not, that's not unnormal. That's not weird among, there's a camaraderie among military people for sure. And I don't know that this, even this guy was another military person. It was someone that was, he was in authority over. And so this guy he loves is about to die. Now, when you read Bible stories, sometimes it's really easy for us to read them like Bible stories and these are nameless, faceless people. How many of you guys have ever experienced that? Random Roman centurion, he had a servant. They don't always give us the name. But this, this centurion had a name. The servant had a name. He cared about him. When I say, if I were to tell you tonight, like I, I'm, I, the guys on my staff, I'm in authority over them, okay? So if I said to you, man, guys, Corey is sick and he's about to die, okay? How would, how would the Wednesday night service feel? Would you guys, would it be sadder than it is now? Aren't you glad he's doing okay? I'm so glad he's doing okay. He's fine. He's a little weird, but he's fine. No, I'm joking. So, so I want you to feel that a little bit. Like this is a guy who has a servant and he really, like I care about Corey, I care about Miles, I care about, I care about you, right? When that happens, we're all a little bit touched by that, right? And so here's a guy, he has this intern, he's sick, but the good news is he's heard about this guy named Jesus. And Jesus is this guy who in the chapter before, there's just people coming out from everywhere because they've heard that this Jesus can heal people. And that's a good, that's good news, right? Like there's some other way to get treated other than what we had before. Here's a guy who's like healing people. So he sends his friends, he sent elders of the sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Who did he send? He sent like notable people of the Jews. Now that's kind of strange. Why would these Jews who don't like Romans typically, and definitely don't like Roman soldiers typically, speak on behalf of the Roman soldier to Jesus? Well, it says in verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. They're coming on and they're vouching for this centurion's character. This is a good guy. What do they say? For he loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. Now that's even more strange, isn't it? Here's a Roman soldier who is tasked with being part of the occupying force over the Jews. Now that's not, this is not so uncommon. There was this thing called the Pax Romana. Have you ever heard of that? The Pax Romana is, uh, Pax is Latin for peace. Romana would be like, would be saying Roman peace. There was a sense, you know, like peace through strength. You've heard of that? Peace through, whenever you conquer, then there's peace after that. That's what was happening in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, and it's actually very good for the gospel because for centuries and centuries and centuries, you have just nothing but just warring, warring. This tribe hates that tribe, and there's all kinds of fighting. And so to get from here to there, like think about like 
every, all these different cities in Ohio hating each other and fighting. So for us to get to Columbus, we got to fight four different tribes, Ohio tribes, to get to that other place. You get what I'm saying? Like regionally, that's how you think. When Rome comes in and conquers everybody, everyone stops fighting because we're all conquered by Rome. And then the Romans put in these things called Roman roads. Have you guys heard of that? They put roads everywhere, so now travel became a whole lot easier. Instead of just going through random wilderness on trails, they literally had stone pathways. And so getting from A to B becomes a lot easier. So the Romans, they conquered, and they were clearly in authority, but, but there was here, like, even people that showed up, and, like, he actually had a heart towards the Jews in so much that he built them a synagogue. Now, synagogues weren't around in the Old Testament time very much. That was kind of a New Testament thing. In between the end of the Old Testament and then you show up in the New Testament, now there's this thing called synagogues. And you know what they did at the synagogues? They gathered together in a local place. You had to have, I think, at least, I think it was 10 families to have a synagogue something like that. Don't quote me on that number, but it was a certain number you had to have. And they would meet one day a week. And when they would meet, they would read the Bible. They would sing. They would pray. And someone would teach. What does that sound like? Right. And when Jesus showed up and he calls disciples, he's a teacher. And what does he do? He, he goes around and he teaches in between. He teaches Monday through Friday, but on Sunday through Friday, but on Saturday, the Bible tells us over and over again, he was in the synagogue as his custom was. And what is he doing? He's a traveling rabbi that gets asked to stand up and teach. And in fact, when he did it at Nazareth, they wanted to kill him because he read a messianic synagogue and goes, yep, that's me. And they're like, throw him off the cliff, right? And he miraculously disappears. Anyway, that's not the story I'm telling tonight. My point is, these synagogues are everywhere, and I believe, now think about this. I believe that was God's sovereignty in making that all happen. Why? Because synagogues went all over the Mediterranean through this Roman peace with these Roman roads. And then this Roman citizen who was also a Pharisee named Paul, who was actually Saul, got his name changed to Paul. What did he do? He would go into a city and he would look for a synagogue because those people believe at least half the Bible. <laughs> he was busy writing the other half through the Holy Spirit. And he would show up in that synagogue and say, hey, you know Isaiah 53? You know Psalm 22? You know Isaiah 9? You know uh, uh, the Bethlehem, Ephratada, that out of you will come a ruler ancient and strong? I know him. I met him. His name is Jesus. You've heard of him too. He's healed all these people and you should believe. And about one segment of people loved him and got saved and they became an assembly. In the Christian sense, the other half hated him and ran him out of town. That's basically the book of Acts, right? That's basically the second half of the book of Acts. So who God set up people who are already believing in the Old Testament in these different areas. How cool is that? God's got a plan, Right? But here's a guy, a Roman, who you would think wouldn't be amenable to the Jews, but here's a guy who apparently has 
some faith because he's at least able to, desire, to have this desire to do this synagogue, okay? Now, where am I at? Verse 5, for he loveth our nation and he hath built a synagogue. So what happened? Verse 6, then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from his house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. Now, what I want to show you, the attitude we're talking about, the first attitude is tenacity. Here's a guy who's tenacious. He, if there's someone that can heal my, if there's someone that can heal my servant, I'm going to get my elder friends to go see Jesus, and then we're going to, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that guy to my friend. But here's what's crazy. Look at what happens. Verse uh, 5. So that, that's verse 5. Here's the second one. Humility. Now we see, that was tenacity. Now let's look at humility. Verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was not afar from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Does that sound humble to you? Does that sound like he has a high view of Jesus or a low view of Jesus? Does, that, does he have a high view of himself or a low view of himself? Or a humble view of himself? For sure humble. He says, verse 7, Wherefore neither though I myself worthy did come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man set under, what's the next word? Now, let me ask you this. Who's saying this? Who's literally verbalizing this? It wasn't the centurion. It was someone on behalf of the centurion. Are you with me? My reason for saying that is, did he think about this? He thought about it. It's almost like, so they sent somebody, he sent messengers, right? He sends the messengers, they go get, and apparently they're, the plan the whole time was for them to go get Jesus. So they go get Jesus, Jesus is coming, and then he sends out new messengers. So on the, while he was there, he, he must have been, this is, I'm reading between the lines, Okay. So this is the part where I tell you this is my opinion. I don't know for sure. But if you think about it, why would he have them come halfway if he thought this way the whole time? Are you with me? What I mean by that is he sent them to, hey, go get Jesus to come heal my servant. So they go do that. Then as he's halfway there, he sends more people out and says, you guys don't know the rest of the story. That's why you're like looking at me like you don't know. Let me read it. Verse 7, wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed, for I am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. What does that have to do with the healing? What is this centurion saying? This centurion is saying, he, he's very logical. 
I get authority. The only way that someone could heal somebody else is if he has the authority to do so. There must be a God who created everything. And the only way that this person could, on his own word, heal somebody else is if they have authority. So, oh no, the person that's coming to see me has authority. And if he has authority to do it in somebody's presence, for sure he has the authority to do it when they're not even around. So, don't waste any more of his time than needs to be wasted. He's got stuff he's doing. He's got people to minister to. He's an important guy. He's way more important than to spend any more time for me than what's needed. So, I just want you to say the word. I believe you can say the word you are and my servant will be healed and then you can go back and do it. This is me putting my part in. You can go back and do whatever you need to do because you're an important person. Now, that is a third attitude, and it's trust, right? Once he recognized the authority of Jesus, he put his trust in that. Look at verse 8. It's like a book of verse 9. Now, what's Jesus' reaction to this? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Now there's all kinds of places in the gospels where people were marveling at Jesus. Can you think of can you think of any? He's raising people from the dead and they marveled. I never we never heard somebody teach like this. He speaks as one having authority. What else? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Man, talk about being, they were marveled at Jesus' authority, right? When he's healing people, he's healing the blind, you know? Um, Who do you say that this man is? All I know is I was blind and now I see, right? Don't throw me out of the synagogue. Do you also want to believe him? You know, that was another one. Um, people were marveling at Jesus all the time. Do you think you would marvel at Jesus? Oh, my goodness. I think that'd be such a cool. I can't wait to meet, to see him face to face. It's going to be amazing. Um, yeah. I, th- I think it's, we have time. Think about this. God is infinite. We are finite, right? Um, he's eternal. And we're eternal, but we're not, we're not, he had no beginning. We had a beginning, right? So think about no beginning. Yeah, that hurts your brain a little bit. Like where, no beginning. So he said, I got to prepare a place for you. And uh, think about what is heaven going to be like? You ever think about that? You think about like 
God's authority and Jesus's authority and how it took him and he and he and it took him this because he was a revealing God not because he had to work hard this wasn't because he is like drawing up plans as he did it it took him 6 days to make the the earth and on the 7th day he rested right that's not because he's like oh i got to do some homework tonight to figure out how to make the birds and then the next day i'll make the bird like that's not that's how it would be for me no i'm joking my, my point is, he could have just said, exist, and it all existed, right? But he did it over time. But I, it's just, it's, it's so incredible to think about what that's going to be like. This is a, this, and then, and then for that God to become flesh and to be on earth and to be limited, he's limiting himself to just, a person, a body, right? The Colossians tells me about Jesus, that he is before all things, that he created all things. All things are by him and for him. And by him, all things consist, which means held together. So he's holding it to, while he's on the cross. <laughs> he's holding the universe together. Does that make sense? I mean, that's, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. How, how? I don't, it's like an ant trying to explain the skyscraper. I, they can't. It's, not, it's out of their league. So here you have Jesus, and we're marveling at him. We still marvel at him. If you're not marveling at him, you're not thinking about him. We're not thinking about him rightly. But here we have Jesus marveling at a non-Jew, a Roman centurion, and what is he marveled by? Let's look, let's look at it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, would that have been offensive to the Jews? You're saying that this Roman guy has more faith because he's essentially saying more faith than you. I didn't find this kind of faith in you people. That I'm I, this is a, an amazing amount of faith. What, what was so great about the faith? What was so great about the faith is, and this is my, again, this is my opinion, this is my interpretation. I think what he marveled at is that the guy actually thought through Jesus, not just as healer, not just as provider, but recognize Jesus as Lord. This guy's in charge, not just of Israel, not like as just some Messiah king. He's in charge of nature. He's in charge of everything. Maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't even, maybe he just got a little bit. He's in charge enough to heal my friend, right? But, it, but that, that faith was more faith than what Jesus said he'd seen anywhere. And it's all wrapped up in this idea. Jesus is in authority over what he's authority over. And ultimately we know who is Jesus in charge of? Everything and everybody. To the point that even though he loves his friend, he believes that Jesus has the authority to do it. And look at what happened. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole 
that had been sick. What do you think they responded? Well, how, what was their response? Do you think they had some conversation about that? I think they probably did. Let me ask you a question. Um, what are some areas where let me rephrase that. What connection is there between Jesus' authority and our faith? When do we demonstrate our faith in Jesus' authority? What does that look like? Okay, you're believing in his ability. So, if I took a picture of Justin, of you doing that, what would that look like? Just get an example. He said praying. Who agrees? Right? If you believe that Jesus, has, like, this is a very simple thing. We have, we're about to hear in just a few minutes. We're going to, we turned in these cards. Hopefully you didn't turn these cards in as sanctified gossip. Right? You didn't turn these in just to inform all your friends about something difficult you're going through. You turned this in because you want us to pray. Hopefully, that's your intention. And hopefully you're praying and you think that this is effective because you want, you believe that God can do something about what you're dealing with. Who agrees? Right? And, and we all pray and when we pray, we try to pray and this isn't just like a cutesy way of doing prayer. This is not just a traditional way of praying. We say at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. What are we saying when we say in Jesus' name? We're not, that's not like a rabbit's foot, right? It's for his glory. Justin, you're right that. That's exactly right. But we're also saying, and everything I just prayed, we believe that you have a will about it and we're submitting to your will. It is my desire that Julie gets healed, but I also know that you have a purpose and a plan. Are you messed up? Okay. You got a purpose and a plan for Julie, and God, we trust you. You're in charge. And if you choose to take Julie home, we're, we're, we're praying this in your name. We're acknowledging, what did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're, when we say in Jesus' name, we're saying, I'm, I've got a will, God. I can't help, I can't, I'm, I'm finite. I don't know exactly what you want about every single situation. I know I'd rather Julie be with us than not. And I know she's got, she doesn't really, she's not really sick. 
that I know of. Okay, this is an illustration. Everybody's like concerned about Julie. Like, what's going on with Julie? But you get my point. So, so I'm yielding to the authority of Jesus when I, when I pray, if I'm doing it the right way, if I'm praying in his name. Okay, what's another way that we yield by faith to the authority of Jesus? I am not surprised that no one's coming up with it because we don't like it. Okay, when we speak on his behalf, for sure. Because we're saying, hey, you should submit to that authority, right? And who, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For sure in evangelism. Yeah, what do you think, Brian? Probably in a moment in time where the person is dying. Okay. Right. Writing a million dollar check to a guy that's got days to live doesn't really matter anymore, right? And so like you're going to you're going to die at some point, so there's an amount of trust that's going on there and so there's a yielding there. Yeah. Somebody else has already said it. What do you think, Deb? Suffering, okay? For sure. Larry? That's the one I'm going for. I can't be yielded to God and be disobedient at the same time. Yielded means submissive. Yielded means obedient. Yielded means I recognize his authority. These are not suggestions for me to consider, right? These are commands for me to obey and there's a trust in that. There's a trust that we have to have in God's authority that when God says, you know, I want you to do it this way, there's a sense in which sometimes, but, but wait a minute, God, if I do it that way, I might get this, 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 and this. Does that make sense? This shows up, I think, sometimes in our kids you ever have your kids and you're like hanging out with other families? You know, families have different like tolerances for certain behavior, right? Some families only tolerate this so much and some this so much or whatever. And so you're hanging out and the kids are playing and the kids from the other family do something that our family would not allow. And I say, Hey, Audrey, stop. Don't do that. You know not to do that. What does she often say? But they're doing it, right? What are they noticing? Hey, it seems like they're having a lot of fun doing the thing I'm not allowed to do, right? Now, let's take that to grown-up world. Does that happen in grown-up world? God tells me to do business this way. You know, just scales are God's delight, but forward scales, fraudulent scales, scales that are cheating, unjust scales, God hates. And there are some businesses that look like they're thriving because they've got unjust scales. And I know they have unjust scales. And God, why aren't you doing anything about their unjust scales? I'm over here scraping by. 
and they're prospering, and I'm, I'm scraping by because I'm doing what's right, and they're prospering doing what's wrong. Have you ever felt that way? Or known people to feel that way, right? Sometimes there's a lack of trust in God that when we're saying that, like God, it doesn't seem like every, it seems like people are getting away with things and I'm not. And it's in those moments that we have to go, you know what? You have a will, you have direction, you have purpose. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm not gonna lack. I'm gonna put my trust not in some other business practice that goes against you that I see some other person doing or some, some wrong leader trying to get me to do. I'm gonna put my trust in you that you said, if I will do it your way, then in the end, I'll please you and you'll take care of me. And you can, you can, you can take that principle and apply it to all of God's commands, right? What, am I, what do I want my kids to believe? I want my kids to believe and to know that there are gonna be times where it doesn't make sense where it seems like what I'm trying to tell you to do may not be. I remember literally mowing my lawn when I'm like 15 years old because I had to earn money for myself to go to camp and my parents wouldn't just pay for it, right? And my parents had all these rules and all these things I wanted to do and, and they had just had, man, this is a horrible thing. You're gonna think less of me, it's fine. They had just done some, some of their like, uh, estate planning and they had told me that a certain set of family members would be the people that would take us if mom and dad died, right? And I knew that those, those set of family members were way more easygoing on A, B, C, and D. I won't even tell you what it is. And so I started thinking, I remember literally mowing my lawn and thinking, my life would be so much easier if those other people were my parents, right? And now I have the benefit of about 25 years since then, and I'm going, my life would be so much worse, so much worse if that had happened. Because my parents' boundaries for me were not for, to get something from me. It's because they wanted something for me. And if I couldn't submit to my parents' authority, then I definitely would never submit to God's authority. Does that make sense? So, so how do I know I'm yielded to God's authority? There's got to be some tenacity in terms of you're going to... There's going to be time where you're going to be tempted not to do it. You've got to have some humility. God is God. I am not God. I am supposed to obey him. And in that obedience, sometimes we have to trust. God teaches in the word proportional giving. That I give the first proportion of my, my first fruits of my income to the thing that he cares about and loves, his storehouse, the church. I don't know why I do better on 90% than I do 100. I just know that I do. I just know that I do. 
You're like, but Ben, math. And I say to you, yeah, but math, theology. God trumps it, right? It doesn't make sense all the time. But when it doesn't make sense, that's when we need to trust him more. Does that make sense? So, when you think about your faith, are you tenacious in what you're doing in terms of your trust in God, in terms of humility, in terms of putting your faith in him, even when it's hard? So, a faith that matters is a faith that is yielded, submissive. God, if you want me to do it, if I love the idea that, man, if you can show me in God's word what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to do it. What a great, great attitude it comes to putting our faith and trust in God. Let's pray. God, I love you so much. I thank you for the example of this centurion who really thought through who Jesus was, thought through Jesus' identity, recognized his authority, and lived, lived in that moment according to it, and how that you came through, how that you honored that faith, and you healed his, his friend. And I pray you'd help us to be people who are obedient, not just blindly obedient, but who are obedient, born out of a faith and a trust in you, believing that what you want for us is so much better than, uh, than the plans that we can make for ourselves. God, I thank you for that. Help us to live obediently this week, and we'll give you the glory and honor and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.